Jeff Sandy talks about why he volunteered for a very dangerous mission in Iraq. My father uh, landed at Utah Beach on D-Day. Wow. Uh, 277 straight days of combat, only a couple dozen of his unit uh, that started, landed at Utah Beach was alive at the end of the war. And no matter what they threw at me, it was my patriotic duty to my country in to use the expertise that I had learned to try to do something to help our country. Uh, and, and, and let me tell you another piece of why I volunteered. Uh, the president of United Bank in West Virginia, Richard Adams, daughter, died at the World Trade Center. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Well, we're very fortunate in West Virginia. We have a wonderful National Guard. Um, and we are we provide training for countries all over the world and um, because of our the uh, strip mining coal mining operations you have vast amount of property there which has been reclaimed uh, the rivers for uh, swift water rescue um, it's just uh, this past year we had a national exercise here uh, which military from over the United States, which my office, Department of Homeland Security, was involved. It's just there's so many. West Virginia's got such a wide area of of uh, wilderness and property and rivers and in former coal mines and stuff. It's a wonderful place to train. And, yeah, and uh, I've talked to some guys allegedly that may have been out in that area, but it's like, yeah, just fabulous, fabulous stuff out there. But, um, Hey, uh, quick, before we move on, Jeff, did you ever know Mark Wills used to be a member I, of the West Virginia state legislator later? I, I did not, sir. He's a judge down in Mercer County. Now he's, um, my best friend from high school. He, uh, went to WVU law school, came out and <laughs> one of the few politicians or former politicians that I can say, I trust 100%. Just curious. Where okay, did he go to school lot? He went to WVU. WVU. Ah, darn. W. Okay. If he'd gone to Marshall, you could have trusted him. But anyway. <laughs> well, no. we don't have we don't have a law school at, at Marshall, uh, so they they're one up on us on that. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that. No, <laughs> not having lawyers on your campus to me that's actually kind of a good thing. But anyway, but going back to the terrorism angle though, so you got mm. this cryptic email. You say, hey, we want you to live. Uh, did they mention anything about sand? or black fleas, or they just left that off of that? They left it off, sir. <laughs> now, there's a, there's a reason why. Okay, so ha, walk us through the story now, because 9-11 has just happened. We're in Afghanistan, and we're now approaching a point to, though it'll be a couple years later, but where they look at addressing the threat at that time, what they call coming from Iraq and Saddam Hussein, because he's already invaded once, invaded Kuwait. That was the first mm -hmm. Gulf War. So, but walk us through now. So you get this cryptic email. What? How does your life change? You do your 30 days, and then what? Well, I was asked to volunteer 
<laughs> Isn't that uh, a, a contradiction in terms? Well, yes, I was asked to volunteer in um, this, in, and this is before the war started, by the way. I, I think that's important to note. Um, so, not um, not before the Afghanistan war started. You're talking about before the Iraq war started. Correct, correct. And um, we were, we were sent to Texas for uh, desert training. And uh, you name a shot, uh, you name a shot, uh, we got it. I mean, I've never had so many shots in my life. I mean, everyone was sticking needles in your arm and everything else. And uh, going into these gas chambers with a mask on to make sure that they did not leak. And uh, it was, uh, you know, getting you prepared uh, to go to be deployed. And um, eventually um, the event starts in, in Iraq. And uh, within a few weeks after um, that started is, is when the first uh, Treasury agents, uh, myself and two other guys, uh, we um, were, were sent uh, to the Middle East. And, and uh, from there, uh, uh, we, we worked on uh, counterterrorism, um, tracing the monies of where the money went for Iraq. And I can uh, talk to you about that because that's been on national TV. Uh, but um, we... Um, Hey Jeff, before we get before we get into that, let's back up a little bit. I want to mm-hmm. talk to you a little bit though about your training because you're an IRS dude. I mean, the worst thing you might your training they taught you how to treat a paper cut, right? Because you're dealing with so mm-hmm. many documents. I'm just mm-hmm. kidding, just kidding. But how did? But you go from that. I know you guys were 1811s, badge carrying, gun carrying, mm-hmm. you know, federal agents. But how much different was it to go through this kind of training to deploy over there? Did you start going, wow, this is, I mean. This is like the real thing. This isn't like, you know, when we used to do operations with the state police or the FBI. How much of a paradigm shift was that for you based on the way the military was preparing you? Well, Morgan, I, I, if I may back up just a minute. Sure. My father uh, landed at Utah Beach on D-Day. Wow. Uh, 277 straight days of combat, only a couple dozen of his unit uh, that started landed at Utah beach was alive at the end of the war. And no matter what they threw at me, it was my patriotic duty to my country in to use the expertise that I had learned to try to do something to help our country. Uh, in, in, and let me, tell you another piece of why I volunteered. Uh, the president of United Bank in West Virginia, Richard Adams, daughter, died at the World Trade Center. And um, I had met her, uh, just a beautiful girl. They never found her body. Um, and uh, so two reasons why it did not matter what was going to happen. I felt with what I had learned in Cleveland and West Virginia and in life, I could help. Wow, what a backstory. Um, in fact, as we're recording this, it's uh, June 9th. Uh, June 6th was mm-hmm. uh, the anniversary of D-Day, the greatest generation. My dad was a World War II and a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's like you just think about what these guys faced when those gates on those landing craft came down. They're storming the mm-hmm. beaches. 
Uh, I think one of the, just a quick sidebar, but one of the greatest speeches I think I ever heard given was by President Reagan at Normandy called the Boys of Point du Hoc. And he's talking about the 75th Rangers mm-hmm. scaling the cliffs, what those guys went through. They fell, they, you know, fell, they were uh, killed, you know, and then, but they kept going, they kept moving and just the sacrifices. I mean, it's, you guys, and you're right. I mean, that's what a powerful way to say, you know, why are you over there? And it becomes very easy. It's like, doesn't matter if there's sand or fleas or whatever mm-hmm. else. Um, right. This is a tradition. Right. Well, this is One. this is what we call patriotism, you know. And and I didn't know that about you, Jeff. And I have even more respect for you now than I did before. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to a true patriot today. Uh, gentlemen, ten years ago on June the sixth, I took my en- entire family to to Normandy, and mm-hmm. we were on the beach uh, there on. On wow. uh, on June the sixth, and uh, and I am blessed that I financially that I have been able to travel, st- starting in England, going to uh, Utah Beach, following my dad's steps all the way through France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Germany, and back down to, and I'll pronounce this wrong. Uh, it's it's Vo. VOC, but it's pronounced Wicklabach, Austria, where my dad was on the last day of World War II. Wow. Wow. Did you go through Bastogne? Yes. My dad's unit, and I've got a copy of it, the Washington Post. My dad's unit was the unit that went in and met the Airborne. Wow. And I have got that uh, fully documented that. Uh, Patton's uh, 3rd Army, 317th uh, Company K, uh, Washington Post, quoted them. They have reached the Airborne. Yeah, my dad My dad was uh, in Europe during World War II also, but he was after uh, the invasions, but mm-hmm. actually passed through Bastogne there as well. And this is after, you know, if you've seen Band of Brothers and they show Easy Company over there, this is after all of their experiences. But, you know, just the fact that during that time, my dad should have been 4F when he went to join the military because he was had very poor sight in one eye. And you'll appreciate this. This is how dedicated everybody was back then to this threat to our country. They had, when they were testing his left eye, they said, okay, cover your right eye. So he used his right hand to cover his right eye. They said, now cover your left eye. He used his left hand to cover his right eye. So, and they didn't catch on that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the length that the people were dedicated to go to, you know, to serve their country back then. Just well, there's stories of guys. Greatest generation. Holy cow. There's stories of guys without birth certificates saying, hey, I'm 16 or I'm 17 or 18 years old when they were 14 or 15, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, just but uh, but I will tell you one quick aside, too. I thought a great speech from Colin Powell when he was secretary of state. It's when people were talking about this. America is just trying to grab land. They're just trying to do this. We're just, you know, an invading force. You know, we're con- we want to do conquest. He was at the U.N. He said the only ground the United States have ever asked for is enough to bury the bodies of our soldiers who died fighting Absolutely. for your country. Absolutely. By the way, too, I funny, uh, we'll get back to the story, but my son-in-law uh, is a Marine formerly on active duty, served in uh, the second Gulf War under General Mattis. And uh, he's got a big sign on the side of their house that says, um, if you can read this sign, thank you. Mil- if you can read this sign, thank your military. If you, or if you, if you can read the sign, thank your teacher. If you can read it in English, thank your military. And it's an <laughs> old, basically world war two sign, you know, 
A lot of people would be speaking German and Japanese today if it wasn't for the United States, Canada, Australia, you know, several, many of these countries who've yeah. helped fight the war. So Absolutely. Back, dude, I mean, you, how do you recover from that? It's like, it, you can't be funny when you say something like that. So let's be serious yeah. then. So you you signed up for this. I mean, you it didn't matter if you were voluntold. You, you were going to go. So, but I kind of go back to that thing. We said, what was the paradigm shift you had between your law enforcement training and now the way the military was prepping you for this work? Well, the Iraqi regime was organized crime. So everything that I had investigated uh, during my career, it was what I investigated in Iraq, was this, it was identical. It was identical. Just to let your readers know, the international language for translation is English. And people say, oh, how did you operate, Jeff? How did you operate? Well, in the bombed-out Central Bank of Central, the Central National Bank of Iraq and the Rafian Bank, in the records, you had the Arabic version, you had the English version, and you had what it was translated to. So I was able, to, we were all able to rapidly work on the investigation because we already had a translation. So that that was uh, very in, important to us. And the other thing, Morgan, is as a federal agent, we are we are taught how to interview people. And that is the key to any investigation. You can be the biggest ass law enforcement officer, but if you cannot communicate with individuals, um, you can't reach your full potential. And I hope I don't insult anybody by saying that. Interviewing is the key in law enforcement. And I feel that's what our federal agents brought with us uh, to Baghdad. And, you know, you hit upon a real good part. So I, I don't know if you ever went through the read method of interview and interrogation. Does that sound familiar? I have, when I was sheriff, I sent people to it, but I have not. Well, I was the first outside instructor for John Reed and Associates. And actually, mm -hmm. one of the places I got to teach was the NSA. We taught, to your point, they had a lot of damage assessment agents that got good at the polygraph, but they lost their interview skills. And so we had to go back and kind of reinforce your interview skills. And I will tell you too, to this day, I solved more cases, I think, through interview and interrogation than I did through physical evidence. Getting admissions from people, even if they don't tell you the truth, but if you can get them to tell you something and it's a lie and you can document that, I used to tell people, it's much easier for me to prove a lie than it is the truth because the truth is incontrovertible. A lie is not. Mm -hmm. And just hopes. I agree with you, Morgan. I oh. agree with you. But inter interviewing yep. uh, can, before you even go through mountains and mountains of evidence, if you, if you have the ability to interview, you can save countless investigative hours. Yeah, and I'll Very tell true. you too, down at Gitmo, uh, some of the people they brought down to Gitmo to help do interviews down there were NYPD cops, LAPD cops, guys that and girls that were used to doing interviews and interrogations of gang members, criminal suspects, and so that served them well down there. But let's let's back up a little bit and talk about how your mission started. So, like I said, you've gone through the mill. Now, did they give you any kind of weapons training uh, in addition to that, or were you just going to carry what you normally carried? Um, I. My weapon, and that's a story, my weapon that I loved was a Sig Sauer 226. 
Me it, too. That weapon was one of the greatest shooting weapons, and I would have given a, one of my body parts if I could have even let them cut it in half when I retired, if I could have taken it with me. But tre- Treasury would not, and I found out ATF, they won't let you do that either. I don't know about DEA, but yeah. but I but I carried my um, uh, IRS assigned six hour. And, um, and in fact, um, hopefully the statute of limitations, but I took with me uh, 147 grain subsonic hollow points, and that was not an approved NATO round. Uh, you had to use the ball ammo. Ah. And, and, and when I left Iraq, you would not believe the people that were uh, coming up to me. Please give me a magazine full of that. Please give me a magazine full of that. <laughs> yes, but uh, but uh, no, we, sh- we shot a qualifications course uh, put on by the uh, United States Army. And then with our M4s, uh, we, we had to qualify. And, um, and then when we reached Baghdad, we also had to again show them that we could qualify with our handgun in the M4. Let's talk about that journey getting to Baghdad. So, um, very interesting. Did you have to fly? Did you get to fly at least decent transport over, or were you on military transport going over to Baghdad? No, uh, they had commercial. Um, they obtained um, uh, companies that would uh, would fly us, and uh, so we had going over. I had a comfortable seat. Coming back wasn't so comfortable. <laughs> But at I, least did you get first class and a decent meal or anything going over before you know one of your final decent meals before you uh, hit the sand? Um, the uh, seat was very comfortable. Was not first class. There were no first class seats on the plane, and and the food was your typical airline food. So ah darn. No, no cocktails. No cocktails. You could have all the water and pop you wanted. <laughs> So once you hit the ground, what, how do they, you get this cryptic email, now you volunteer, they assign you and two other folks. When they brief you on this mission, what is your brief? What is, what is going to be your remit for this operation? What are you there to do in Baghdad? My job is to find out where the money that was in the bank accounts for the people of Iraq, where that money was where it was that was that was the main thrust second thrust was the united nations oil for food fraud and the third was during our interviews always asked about weapons of mass destruction so all right so you've got kind of a the triumvirate of things you have to go after uh, obviously mm-hmm. we we know this we don't we won't dive into the WMD because we've had a guest on talk about that and that's that's well documented but the financial standpoint mm-hmm. did they give you a scope of the problem when you went in there are you talking about hundreds of millions billions of dollars do you guys have an idea of the scope before you start digging in it's over 300 billion dollars with a b well okay <laughs> That gave, you got my attention there, three hundred oh, yeah. billion, and and what was the purpose of doing this investigation? I mean, there's other things to say. Look, I mean, are you really going to bring somebody back to the U.S. and try them, or are you looking to repatriate money back to the citizens of Iraq for post-war reconstruction and survival? What's the what's the ultimate goal for doing this investigation? 
Number one, keep the money out of terrorist hands. Number two, uh, give get the money and give it back to the people of Iraq so they can build a strong country. $300 billion is an awful lot of terrorism financing. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Now, in parallel to that, did you have anything to do with the Holy – when I say Holy Land, you're familiar with that one, right? Yes. Um, I did not have anything to do with that until after I retired, and I was hired by a company out of Washington, D.C. to uh, help financial institutions investigate terrorism finance. And I was at a particular bank in um, the United States where – uh, the bank was being sanctioned for not doing thorough reviews of that money, sir. Yeah, because just for the play, our players out there, uh, the Holy Land Foundation was the largest terrorism financing case. I don't, I don't know if it's still that to this day. Mm-hmm. And the host, there were a lot of people. There were a lot of uh, what they call unindicted co-conspirators, but the list is long. And the judge, I think. The judge was, I don't know if he was so disturbed by the evidence, but he wanted to make sure there's a clear record. It is all published, uh, I think, out of the court. You know, the mm-hmm. court was in Houston, if I remember right, um, and was all published. So anyway, kind of setting the stage, because what we're talking about, like we said, Loudoun County, Fairfax County at that time doing the raids on terrorism financing. This leads mm-hmm. back over to uh, Baghdad. So tell us about digging in. How do you get started looking for $300 billion? Well, my hats off to our United States military. They would go into businesses and they would grasp uh, all the financial records in bombed out buildings that were blown up. Uh, The Central National Bank of Iraq uh, gather up the records and those records were taken to Qatar, the country of Qatar, some people call it Qatar, and just wonderful intelligence analysts for our great military would 24 hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they would go through records. Everything would be scanned, go through massive amount of records. And so uh, not one person, not a group of people. It took a massive amount of people to gather the intelligence and have it so it could be analyzed. Yeah, there's a the military and the government always have to have their terms. So I think they would call that document exploitation. They would call mm-hmm. it DOCX and things like that. But you're right. It takes when you think about the number of people it takes to do something like that mm-hmm. um, and just get you the intelligence value. Out. So. Give us a scope of that too. When you said you had the military out there, you had the analysts. How many people are we talking about? You got three RS agents. You're like I feel you. You're like Murphy and Pena. The war on drugs. Who do they send down to combat the war on drugs? Two DEA agents to go after Pablo Escobar. You know, you got to feel kind of like that. Like there's three of us here, and we're going after Saddam Hussein. You know, and all of the ill-gotten gains. Right. Again, during the first few days that we're there. We are introduced to every shift of the workers. We tell them what I told you, what our mission is. And it was just outstanding. You were constantly, you had um, a major sergeant, whatever, come up to you and said, 
Mr. Sandy, would you please um, uh, look at this and, and, and analyze this? Tell us what you think of this. So uh, we, we um, um, the article that I wrote for the, that you have received, um, that was based on um, being able to understand their records and how their mindset worked. So a lot of different factors came into it, was interviewing, interviewing saved a lot of time, and um, the great people of our military being able to go through massive amount of records. And and this article you're talking about, um, it was in the uh, June-July 26th magazine called The Counter-Terrorist, right? That is correct, sir. Yeah. See, there you go with that, sir, again, Jeff. We're going to have to retrain you. I know it. It's my West Virginia upbringing. He's a gentleman. We're not. Well, I just thought he naturally right. recognized the command presence that I brought to the. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, even with all my hair, I got to go get a haircut. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's a counterterrorism article, and it's. I mean, Reddit. <laughs> well, what are you laughing at, Murph? <laughs> Dude, not only are you losing hair, you're about to lose a knee too. Tomorrow, you got to go in and get that knee looked at, which is why we can't mm-hmm. record tomorrow because you'll be on pain meds, and heaven knows what you might say. Oh, yeah. We might really give you down the road then. <laughs> we have fun, Jeff. Hey, thanks for, so, thanks for playing along. But So you get started doing this. Tell us, how does this unfold? So um, let's book in this, though, which talking about how long we'll, – we'll get through the whole story, but how long were you in country till your mission, when your mission ended? Um, approximately 120 days. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's, talk, let's kind of work through those f- uh, you know, four months there. So mm-hmm. – How's, how did things unfold? How did things progress? Well, one of our mission was to interview people on the decks of cards, uh, the high-ranking Iraqi officials that were familiar with how the money, the money moved and operated in the uh, the country. So obviously, that would be your finance minister, uh, the former ambassador to Switzerland, uh, Barzan Al-Turhidi, and the person that uh, really helped our country out was uh, Tariq Aziz, the deputy prime minister of Iraq, who was also the, the spokesperson who often came to the United Nations and spoke. So interviewing uh, those individuals was um, saved thousands of hours of investigative time. Let's let's talk about uh, Tariq Aziz because you're, you're right. He was the face basically of the war for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, he could go places where Saddam uh, Saddam wouldn't go because he was afraid of getting uh, assassinated, arrested, whatever else if he left Iraq. So, what? When was your first contact with Tariq Aziz? Uh, approximately three weeks upon my arrival in Baghdad, um, I. You had how it worked. You put in a request with the military. The military approved it, and then you would go out to the uh, prison, the prison, and uh, they would place you in an interview room with the individual. In this case, Tariq Aziz. Now we should note too that Tariq actually turned himself in. He was not captured. I mean, he kind of knew what was coming, right? Um, I cannot uh, answer that. Uh, how? I, if I could, I would, but I do not know how uh, he got in imprisoned. 
Well, you know, they famously had this deck of cards, so, you know, they would be looking for people and Baghdad, Bob, and the other ones, too. But I think Tariq is uh, being kind of the politician type he is. He kind of knew it would be better to be on Team America than it would be to have the Americans hunting for you. But that being said, tell us about the prison, too. What was that environment like? Um, You go in there. I got to tell you guys, as former law enforcement, I felt so sorry for those guards, correction officers at the MPs at the military uh, prison. I'd never seen so many flies in my life. They were there and they would have their AR-15s. They would have their handguns. But what they had was fly swatters. And I mean, they were, it was so bad. There was, I mean, I'd never seen so many flies in my life, guys. It was just, uh, it was just, excuse me, swarms, swarms of flies. And, uh, and when I would leave every day, I would, I would thank those military guys for their service because it was, it was bad. So, um, so you would go into the room and an interesting thing about Trikaziz is that uh, he, he wanted everyone to think he was crazy. And the, the military said, Mr. Sandy, there's no need to interview him. He'll come in the room. He will go in the corner of the room and he will defecate and he'll wipe himself and come over and want to shake your hand. And, um, and they said, are you sure you want to talk to him? And I said, yes, I do. Just don't I, I shake did. his hand. Well, uh, I never said I was smart, Morgan. I did shake his oh, hand. Here, oh, my God. I did shake oh, geez, his I hand. I, I shook your hand. Did yeah, you, you did. <laughs> uh, and, but I did that, that he was not going to get anything over on me. And his first question to me was, how many different languages can you speak? And I said, let's get this off to a good start, Mr. Aziz. I asked the questions and you answer. And I said, Mr. Aziz, how many languages do you speak? And he goes, seven. And he looked at me and says, now, let me see how you are doing. Tell me how many different languages can you speak, sir? And I said, two. And he goes, what are they? And I said, English and Appalachianese. And he said, there's not such a thing as Appalachianese. <laughs> So you ain't we got, west from West Virginia, are you, son? <laughs> yeah, we. So we we. That's how we started, and we talked day one. Talked, and I said, Mister Aziz, we haven't accomplished much today, but I said I'm coming back tomorrow. Is there anything you'd like for me to bring to you? And he goes, grapes, and can you get me a Cuban cigar? I said I will do my best, and I went to one of the PXs and I got grapes and a Cuban cigar. And on day two, I came and I gave them, and he says, you're the first person, he spoke great English, you're the first person that ever asked me if I wanted something. And he says, I thank you for bringing me these grapes and the cigar. And I said, okay. So we talked and and we again gathered a relationship there. And on day three, before I left on day two, I said, Mr. Aziz, how would you like to get out of prison for a day? And he says, I would really like that. So working with the uh, great, and this is a great group, guys, the Utah National Guard, unbelievable group of men. Mm -hmm. They worked the Olympics 
and uh, and uh, they arranged for me to take him to the CPA Palace. So we go and we're on Sniper Alley. We go and we get into the compound, and um, we're walking down the hall, and um, and in my and this means so much to me, guys. And that is, we walk by a room and they're playing ESPN, and Marshall is playing Kansas State, Marshall University. And on ESPN said, if Marshall can hold on, it'll be the biggest victory in their school history. Kansas State was rated sixth in the nation. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Mr. Aziz and I said, Mr. Aziz, would you mind if we go in here and sit on this couch for a few minutes? And he goes, where else would I go? Back to jail? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so we, we sat there in Marshall wins. Marshall beats the number six rated team in the nation. And I'm giving this Iraqi woman a high five and everything. And I said, um, Mr. Aziz, I said, um, let's go to the interview room. And we go in that room and he looks at me and he goes, been long time since I've seen someone so happy. I don't understand why you're so happy about a sporting event. Why? And I tell him the story about me watching TV when the Marshall plane crash was announced on the news, the death of all those people, and that's why I went to Marshall University. And he looked at me and says, I believe in you. I trust you. What do you want to know? And I said, I want to know where the money went. I want to know about weapons of mass destruction. And and he says, ah, weapons of mass destruction. You were about a year too soon. You're too soon. I will help you with the money. And and, what did he mean by you were a year too soon? uh, Because um, they had purchased and I have, uh, I found the records. They had purchased titanium missile casings from North Korea that were never delivered. Um, on the um, on the uh, in the article, you will see the money laundering showing how they purchased the missile casings uh, and was able to circumvent the United Nations sanctions. Yeah, and that's I've got that article up in front of me. It's like a it's one of those old legal pad sheets or whatever. It's a line sheet, and you've got a just a hand drawn diagram showing how and how that's all not, happened. And that's not my writing. That is the Deputy Prime Minister of Iraq, Tariq Aziz's writing. Hmm. Oh, and I see I, al-Bashar. Are we, talking from, are we talking the same one in Syria? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, if, and the documents, this was money laundering at its best form. The money went from the government to a trading company through numerous other channels to eventually made it to the Toshong uh, company. In, and uh, the purchase of the missile. And the and interesting is, even on the last stage of the money laundering, Saddam was supposed to get a 10% kickback uh, from the purchase of the titanium missile casings. So, um, so that, again, this is money laundering at the international level. Well, and I love the title of your article, too, because it really puts it in perspective. It was International Financial Terrorism 
organized crime of the 21st century. That's really what it's become. I mean, you, Saddam Hussein was an organized crime. You know, he was a criminal that just happened to have a military. You know, mm-hmm. we happened to run a country. He's nothing more than a than. Uh, and actually, one of the people we've got coming up, we have scheduled, was a guy who was a made member of the Colombo crime family. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just that's that's what he was. He they basically this was their version of La Cosa Nostra, except it was called the Iraqi National Military. You know, and he mm-hmm. was in charge of the government. Yes, it's um, so to answer your question, if you can investigate a narcotics organization, you can investigate corruption in government. The same skills that are there, you use both. So um, The same um, skills, but is it also the same kind of schemes? Do they do things generally the same way? Um, I, I believe every organization's different. If someone tells you it's the same old, they're kind of, I disagree with them. Everyone does something a little different. And uh, in this particular case, um, uh, the flow of the money was, again, pure money laundering um, at the international level. And until we got the records and got Mr. Aziz to cooperate, uh, this was unknown. Unknown. What was Saddam going to do with those missile casings? That was, according to Mr. Aziz, that would be the... uh, it, what it was, it was the casings uh, that you would that would be the propellant. You would put the propellant in for the uh, the missiles. So okay. that's what those were for. So, but what you're saying is that we were a year too soon. But it was obviously Saddam's ultimate goal to obtain some kind of WMD, right? That was what uh, Tarika said. But again, we were way too early, uh, way too early in regard to that. But. But he was using these money laundering schemes and everything else to finance the acquisition mm-hmm. of these WMDs, right? So right, right. you might say we're too early, or the question is, were we at the right time and prevented him from getting that? Right. Is your cup half full or half empty? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there is – it's just like Kim Jong-un, you know, and uh, uh, guys like that, or, you know, the Ayatollahs in Iran. I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't trust them with any kind of WMDs, you know. Mm-hmm. But right. uh, so go through – here's interesting. because. You know, if folks go back and watch some of the clips, and for those of you players who are old enough, you saw Tariq Aziz on TV. He was articulate. He was well-spoken, um, knew how to communicate effectively. And for you to have the, to do that relationship with him in three days, I mean, that's amazing because this guy could have played you for for the entire time you're there and you never could have got anything. Right. Um, it was so interesting um, when after I typed up my report, and and that's something to say. And I'm sure Steve, when he was working his cases now in Columbia, your your every day is your work. Yeah, I mean you, live you, it. you eat, you live it. Thank you. You eat, you sleep a little bit, but you work. And so when I typed up my uh, report on this, I was called into the. Um, a particular governmental agency's office, and I'll never forget this. Um, they said, "What interrogation technique did you use to obtain this information?" And I looked at this guy straight in the face, <laughs> and I said, "I interviewed him. College football. <laughs> I I interviewed him." And they said, "What did you promise him? What did you do, or whatever?" And I said, 
I I just interviewed him. I said that's what I've done for decades. Is uh, I interview people, and uh, they 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 thought that was strange that uh, grapes, Cuban cigars, and um, a football game, Steve. Whatever it takes. I mean, that's yeah. and, and that's a, the sign of a good interviewer is you've got you know as much as you hate to sometimes you've got to come across a common ground there, and you mm-hmm. if you want to gain ground you've got to show them respect. Yeah. And, Sometimes uh, you got to take one for the team when you interview people, like right. interviewing rape suspects, sexual assault suspects. You know, you just, you know, you got to, you can't, if you let your personal, the thing is, you could have gone over there and let your personal bias get in the way, and that would have ruined the entire interview. You could have mm-hmm. said, you're scum. You kill, I mean, how many, look, let's kind of book in this here too. How many people do we think Saddam Hussein was probably responsible for killing? Mm-hmm. Oh, especially the other person I interviewed, the ambassador to Switzerland, uh, Barzan. And also, then he became, when he screwed up in Switzerland, he became the chief of police for Iraq. I mean, he he killed more Kurds than we'll ever know. Wow. And by the way, um, Morgan and Steve, type in the hanging of uh, uh, Barzan al-Turkidi, and uh, you'll see... Um, You'll see all the weights on his legs and um, notice what happens when they hang him. His head pops off. But he, Now, he, we'll talk about that too later because I, I watched or I saw the video of when they did that to Saddam yeah. Hussein, you know, when they executed him. Yeah. Um, but but again, that's what I go back to. These guys were more than just criminals. They were, they were killers. They were mass killers. Oh. They, ki- they killed people just for the sport. I mean— you had Saddam Hussein's sons, and now you had this, I think it was, I don't know if that happened before, I mean, obviously it happened before you got there, I'm not sure when, but he killed some of the soccer team or whatever because they failed to win a game? I interviewed, Morgan, the um, uh, the head of the Iraqi Olympic Committee, and it was the longest interview that I'd ever had in my life because I had to write my questions in English. They would translate him Arabic because he could not talk. Um, Uday had his tongue cut out, so he had no tongue. He couldn't talk, so everything had to be written back and forth. Oh my goodness! It took it took hours and day, and it led into days and everything else. It was the toughest interview I've ever had. He could not talk. Man. Uh, just, you know, the depravity of some of these folks. And you wonder what kind of a world is out there. There are people like this. And when they get into power, what's the old saying? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When you've got absolute power over a country, look at look at the things. Cut people's tongue out because they didn't win a game. Yeah. It, um, again, both of you are law enforcement officers. Just imagine um, writing, translating, writing, translating, writing. I mean, it was it took forever. I don't have a story that even matches yours, but my longest interview involved, we had a drive-by shooting one night, and the victims were from South America that spoke a South American Indian dialect. Mm-hmm. And so we had, and we couldn't find anybody. So we actually had to, um, we, back in the day, they had what they called AT&T Language Line. I ran up the biggest bill the department's ever had using AT&T Language Line because we had to ask the guy in Spanish. Uh, I had to ask the guy in English who translated it to a guy in Spanish who could then speak the uh, 
South American Indian dialect, and then they replied back in Indian. He translated it to Spanish to this guy who's translated it to English and me. And what was a, it wasn't that big of an interview, maybe a 30 minute interview, which would have been if you and I had been talking, was three hours. So I think, I think the bill was five or six hundred dollars. They got it. They go, right, what the hell is this? Man, they're victims, pal. What do you want me to do? But anyway, like I said, I don't, doesn't even match your story of doing that. But again, these are things you overcome cultural things, you overcome, logistical things, you know, environmental things. At what point do you think it was that third day when Tariq kind of goes, he just gave it up. He liked you enough to say, I'm going to tell you everything. I mean, he had to hold back something, right? Everyone, everyone like that would, you need to have that ACE left over. But, um, but, but what I obtained from him, the people that were upper levels above me were, we're pleased with what we were able to obtain. And uh, uh, in this uh, information, you know, they learned this. The Iraqi intelligence and the way the Iraqis uh, did do business, this is Russian. So even to this day, to this day with uh, the war in Ukraine, the information on how to conduct and move money is. I am confident, don't know firsthand, but I am confident that what we learned in Iraq is benefiting law enforcement, Interpol across the world. You know, so people think we're just a bunch of dumb hillbillies. And here, you know, Mr. Hillbilly Jeff Sandy goes over, volunteers to go over to the Great Desert to take on, you know, arguably the number two guy in the Iraqi regime. And convinces him to talk. Wow. Yeah. Well, we're a bunch of dumbasses, aren't we? Yeah. Um, guys, this may be an interesting story for your listeners, and that is I was in um, the room, the control room, when the farmer called in stating he knew where Saddam was. And so they went to the area, in the, and they could not find Saddam. And that farmer called, and he cussed our people out right and left. And, and, and um, so he said, you walked right over the pit where he's at. So they go back the next day, and they, and they find Saddam. They arrest Saddam. And I had the opportunity to interview the farmer. And uh, I said, sir. I said, you had the highest ranking Iraqi official, Saddam Hussein, on your property. Wasn't that an honor for you, for him to trust you to keep it there? He goes, ah, all money. It's all about money. He goes, I heard that they were offering hundreds of thousands of U.S. dollars for his capture. And when he would pay me the thousand dollars a week to stay in the cell he goes i could see in the stainless steel case he was running out of money so it's all about money mr sandy <laughs> he bled him dry and then he ratted him out that's exactly right my that's kind of guy <laughs> how much how much was saddam worth i i cannot uh, tell you because the monies that um that no, I, I mean, how much was he worth uh, for the reward? Um, 
you know, I knew that. I'm thinking it was like $50,000 is what it was. Well, hell, but you had a higher bounty than that, Murph. Look at you. You're five times the worth yeah. of uh, Saddam Hussein. I, I'm sure you can find that on the internet. Maybe that's what Steve's doing. But it was, but it was more money than what was left in this case. Oh, man gets thirty million dollars for Saddam's sons tip. Yeah. Okay. For his sons, that's Uday for Saddam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some farmers living five million. Yeah, I I do not remember, guys. Sorry. Did but, you get a finder's fee or anything? But. Um, are you, were you talking to me, Morgan? Yeah, I'm going, didn't you get a finder's fee? I mean, here in no, the country. No, no sir. <laughs> no finder's fee. No, See, you were no stunned find- silence. You were, what is he saying? No, no you know. No, but, no finder's fee. 25 but, um, million for, uh, no, 30 million for Saddam. Mm, I mean. Yeah. If you, I forwarded to you when I came back from Iraq, I appeared on ABC News with Peter Jennings. Mm-hmm. And if you have an opportunity to, um, uh, watch that. Um, um, I'm so proud of um, what we were able to do to keep the money out of the terrorist hands. Um, in um, the Juan Zarati, who was the um, uh, one of our high-ranking officials um, with the Treasury, uh, testified in front of uh, Congress, and very proud of him. His recognition of um, our team what our team accomplished. And Morgan, you asked me about embarrassing moments. Uh, one night, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. one <laughs> night, good. one yeah. night I've traced like $8 million to a bank account in Lebanon, wire transferred in the bank account. And um, obviously you've got the time difference and, and everything, but we tried to get the state department to put a freeze put a freeze on that and it was just the timing you we just couldn't accomplish it in time and a um, person who was identified as a terrorist went to that bank and withdrew two million two billion dollars of the of the eight before we could get it frozen and you know you're there and that just goes through you if you have any um type a personality like i'm sure all of us on this um podcast or i know definitely murphy is but you know i'm not i don't know why everybody says that i'm not (laughs) but uh, but when you lose when you lose like that when that guy walked in that bank got that two million bucks i mean i my fist was Mm -hmm. like i mean i was hitting things Mm -hmm. because you know somebody that you needed back in washington is sitting on their lazy ass rather than getting in there and getting their job done and you're out in the field risking your life you're like get your butt back in the office yeah. Well, again, I can't. I can't. Well, that's not an embarrassing moment. That's that's a moment of genuine professional frustration. And right. that that I'm talking about embarrassing. Like you walked out of the restroom, you left your fly open, and Tariq Aziz called you on it. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Not <laughs> you. You are such a good guy. You go it's embarrassing because they got two million. Well, no, that I mean, just from a professional standpoint, it's like you're seeing it there, and then it disappears in front of you. Because on the other hand, you're going, where's that two million going? Who's it going to be used well, against? And what and what Jeff is, he's a humble man yep. who has done an exceptional job. And it's not that we're having to pull it out of you, but he wants to make sure that the credit goes to everybody, not just one person. And that that's very, very admirable, Jeff. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we will post this article. We'll post the uh, video uh, that you sent mm-hmm. us. That, that'll all be on the website for everybody to see so they can read it. Um, but let's go back to that because, like, you're on the ground for 120 days, and I was going back – that uh, Tariq is obviously he he does these guys don't give you everything nobody ever gives you everything mm-hmm. but what do you feel in terms of what you thought he had to give versus what he gave you how close did he come to giving you a hundred percent well Morgan I would just be guessing yes I could, yeah guessing but what I do know that for every dollar that we were able to stop from getting in the terrorist hands was, you know, to build a roadside bomb is about 20 bucks. Okay. Hmm. Every, every, all the money that we were able, when I, my last day there, uh, general Taylor, uh, said, um, if we ever invade a country again, the, the people that we will be contacting first, if we're going into the country, is number one, we're having our special forces go to the financial institutions, okay, and secure it. And two, you treasury agents will be here on our side. You guys have saved thousands of American lives. That's all I. That's all I needed, uh, Steve and Morgan, for a general to say that about some pencil pusher guys that. Um, uh, or carry guns. Yep. Uh, yep. But I'll, if I know we're probably running out of time, but I got it. No, 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 no. Look, we go as long as we need to go. That's we're right. here yeah. as long as you're, as long as you don't pass out. Just tell me it. where you are in case you pass out. We'll get you help. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. And, and again, our military guys are just so I'm leaving the prison one afternoon. And these two, army guys are squatted down, squatted down behind this uh, brick, stucco brick stone wall or whatever. And I said, hey, guys, what's wrong? And he says, "Uh, we're taking sniper fire. And I said, well, thanks for telling me. I just (laughs) drove up here. (laughs) And, and And he says, he said, he said, hunker down. And he goes, hunker down. And, um, as soon as we get the clear, uh, I'll tell you guys, and what I want you to do is floor your vehicle and get out of here as soon as possible. So 10 minutes pass, 20 minutes pass. And I said, have you heard anything? And he says, he said, let me check. And he radios and they said, okay, it, it's been 45 minutes since our last shot. Do what I told you, floor it and go out. I floored that Nissan vehicle and about that time i hear ding <laughs> and about 24 inches going into the back door <laughs> is is a you can tell it's either it, it, the the round went through the door and through the floorboard of the car <laughs> wow <laughs> the next day needless to say i i i had some conversations with the guys <laughs> Oh jeez! Yeah, that's not a comfortable feeling. Look at here we are laughing about. It. I just took a sniper. I, I mean, you really for real? Not like other people that may have claimed they took sniper fire. You took sniper fire. Oh, but yeah, it was. Uh, in, but he told me right. He said, "Florid." If I would have went out slow, yeah, he got you. Oh, oh my, my gosh! Uh, and then one time we're in downtown Baghdad, 
and um, we're in a traffic jam. And, and that is the worst. I've seen the videos of army vehicles, the Humvees or whatever they have. They do not stand still. They push cars out of the way. You do not mm-hmm. get stuck in those things. Right. So when I would travel with them, now see the prison was all inside what was, we call a secure area. So when I left there, um, uh, the sniper was, you know, off the grounds. But we're downtown Baghdad in the um, Utah National Guard colonel. We, we trained on this. You had the same seat every time. And my seat was the second row passenger. And, uh, and in the back area, they would roll down the, the third row seat. And the guy had a, um, uh, the saw, a saw machine gun. So we're there stopped in traffic. And what they were doing at that time was they would walk toward your vehicle with their hand behind their back. Mm -hmm. And when they got up to you, they would pull that hand out and toss uh, the uh, explosive device. And guys, um, I'm there and uh, the uh, colonel says, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Authorization to shoot. And um, and those of you who have shot the uh, M4s, you know, if you're used to, if you're a right-handed person, it's tough shooting that gun uh, from your left-hand shoulder. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was pulling back on that trigger. And about that time, um, when I had authorization to shoot, the guy showed his hands. And, I, and I'll forever be thankful that that guy showed his hands. That... He doesn't know how close to death he came that day. Yeah, I was, um, but it was, I'll never forget that. That colonel with the Utah National Guard says, you have authorization. Well, it, you know, it's lucky the uh, the the saw weapon, the uh, squad automatic weapon didn't open up because that would have ripped the guy in half. Yeah. That's 5.56, well, five, man. That would have uh, stitched him, uh, that would have cut him in half. Well, Murphy, the way we were positioned was he just had, uh, the back and it was, he could not flip around to the, the side window side. Mm. He could shoot what, if it was behind him. So, um, that was, um, very, um, the teamwork between, right. uh, FBI every Sunday, the FBI at the compound, uh, there would inv- invite us over for, for dinner in, uh, uh, the ATF that was there, uh, Secret Service that was there, uh, you know, people pulled for one another. And I'm sure when you were down in Columbia, uh, people were pulling. If you didn't have people pulling the rope in the same direction, uh, you're in trouble. Yep, absolutely. And it just figures, who has the best chow? Frickin' FBI. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I almost um, thought it was the Air Force. <laughs> yeah, well, the Air Navy Force is your military, but on DOJ, you want to eat well? Go wherever the FBI is. They eat well. They travel well. But, you know. Um, <laughs> hey, guys, in Baghdad, a Camp Slayer where I was at, you talk about you'd get in line, you'd go in, and I would see hot dog buns that had mold on them, green hot dogs, et cetera. And everyone would just, it was like, you walk through and you go out the exit door and they had boxes of MREs. So everyone would grab. It was, it was an interesting environment. I MREs you, are not 
they they sound good in theory. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, you want to you want to try some bad MREs? Try Colombian MREs. They were they had the only good thing in it. They had this little packet of chocolate powder that you could mix mix with water to create like a chocolate drink. Mm-hmm. But typically, when you're out on patrol, you always run into kids, and that's what you give them. You know. Those well, you didn't the like the rubber MREs chicken there. necks that you guys were eating at the the base. Uh, the MREs were worse than that. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. yeah. But hey, but I, what I was going what I was going to say yeah, go is, is Jeff. I worked with a lot of IRS throughout the years. Um, when I was in Columbia, we had uh, an IRS agent that they would. I think they came in on thirty or, or I mean sixty or ninety day TDYs, and they would rotate. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I ended up in North Carolina and Greensboro. And whenever we were going to start an, o- an OCDEF case, you always wanted an, F- uh, an IRS agent on board because they could a- get access to the tax records and that <laughs> we couldn't see, but you know they could add additional charges depending on what they found. And then uh, eventually, I ended up down in Atlanta running the OCDEF Strike Force and had a full IRS group of agents in there with us. <laughs> um, I've never met an IRS agent that has come anywhere close to doing the things that you've done. Um, and I'll give you an example. In the strike force, we were going out on a case, and this guy was bringing in ecstasy and, and things like that through the mail from Europe. And so we wanted to go in. We had a search warrant for his house, but we wanted to knock on the door and do it. You know, we wanted, we wanted him to cooperate for what we wanted because we wanted an international indictment. And apparently this guy saw us coming up the driveway or saw my guys coming up the driveway and he didn't answer the door and they saw him peeking out the window as they're walking up and they thought, okay, we got to do this the hard way. Well, apparently when they kicked the door at the exact same time, he shot himself under the chin. Now he, he lived, believe it or not, but they didn't hear the gunshot. Well, on the raid was a female IRS agent. And whenever they were going to leave the office, they had to go to the sack and get written permission. You know, and she and she and I were friends. Uh, I'm just going to say her name, Rebecca, her first name. Mm-hmm. So I love the lady, super lady. Dude. She would do anything she could to help us. But, I mean, they were so restrictive on what they could do. So this raid is over, and this female agent comes back in, and she is close to retirement, and, and she comes and knocks on my door, and I'm the director of the strike force, and she says, Mr. Murphy, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure, come on in. She said, I got to tell you, in my all my years of an IRS agent, that is the most excitement I've ever had anything I've ever done. And I'm thinking, and you're coming up on like a 30-year retirement? That's, and all you do is walk up the driveway and follow the guys in the house and just do a search warrant. So it, it's uh, it's very reassuring to hear, you know, your stories. And, and I mean, some of the guys that were rotating in from IRS to Columbia, you know, it was, it was a 60 or 90-day party, quite honestly, for them. We weren't getting a lot of... Uh, they would, they would do anything you ask them, but anything proactive, it wasn't going to happen. Well, I think that's the West Virginia uh, upbringing, uh, yeah. that we did not have much. What we, I remember, guys, I, I remember wearing baseballs out and taking uh, dental floss and restitching the baseball to keep on using it when I was a kid. <laughs> And you know what? If you're going to get in there and do the job, get in there and do the damn job. You know, who wants to right. sit back on their butt and be bored all the time? Right. Well, let's speak of doing this job real quick because I don't want to leave this before we kind of close out uh, Baghdad. So, um, like we we're talking about Tariq Aziz, he's holding back, obviously. But I, I love what you said is that, look, it's also the amount of dollars you took off the street to keep them from building these bombs, yeah. keep them from mm-hmm. killing American soldiers, British soldiers, mm-hmm. innocent civilians mm-hmm. um, like that. 
did were you supposed to be there for 120 days or did you get extended or was that what your tour was going to be? It was. And then a new group uh, came in. A new group of agents came in. So um, and, and they did a fantastic job. Uh, too, because I read their reports. And, um, and of course, um, uh, we had team members that testified in Congress, in front of Congress. And in the United Nations oil for food fraud, um, the two other agents that were with me, they spent a lot of time working with the United Nations on that fraud. And that, that's a conversation you could speak for hours about, um, Saddam, was rather than selling oil, the United Nations gave him money uh, to feed the poor, needy kids of Iraq. Yeah, right. And in, instead, he pocketed uh, pocketed that money and continued to sell oil on the black market. And uh, uh, the the IRS guys um, did a fantastic job working that part. Well, let's let's talk about you and Tariq because um, it took you three weeks just to get authorization to see him, and so now, like after about the first month, is when you really start getting stuff. How did things unfold after that? In other words, um, you know, what other things did he lead you to? What other discoveries did you make? And was did you have a big aha moment? I mean, did you end up finding something that was like we had no idea this was going on? Well, what he did, like in any case, is after we exhausted the monies, he directed me on who I needed to talk to, which was just fantastic. Like, mm-hmm. uh, for example, Barzan Al-Turkidi, the uh, former ambassador to Switzerland, and then that he helped me during my interviews with him. Because, for example, I had a document in a folder uh, and spoke to Barzan for three hours. And he said, no, 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 no. And finally, three hours, I opened the folder and said, Barzan, why are you lying to me? Look right here. He goes, okay, yeah, I lied to you. I mean, it was, they, that's the way their attitude was. They were allowed to lie, you know? So uh, Barzan um, was the most evil man that I've ever met in my life. And guys, I meant this. I said, Mr. Barzan, I will come back, pay for it myself to watch you hang. And, and, and if I would have known when they were going to hang him, I would have paid my own way there. One of the most evil men. When he was ambassador to Switzerland, he got in an argument with one of Saddam's number one bodyguards. He killed him. He killed him in his, his room in, in Switzerland. He cut up his body and put it in suitcases and wrapped the suitcases with a saran wrap and, and everything and shipped the body back to Iraq. Oh, geez. Back to Iraq. He, he got removed from being the ambassador to Switzerland because of that killing famous. And I had Barzan take off his his shirt because he kept telling me and I didn't believe a word he said he kept telling me Saddam had him shot and this is the truth guys I've never seen a body he had over 40 bullet holes in his body wow how the hell did that son of a bitch survive (laughs) well somebody's a bad shot in the Iraqi army I can tell you that I mean so he says Saddam comes to visit him in the hospital 
And he says, they told him before they said they were going to kill him that it was Saddam who wanted him hit. But he said, when Saddam came to see him, he said, last thing I was going to ask Saddam, why, why were you going to have me killed? <laughs> because he thought they would kill me right there. Mm-hmm. But he was just evil. He, he said the Kurds deserved to be killed, and he was just an evil guy. And the uh, Kurds, uh, you know, in my opinion, the Kurds are good people. Uh, yeah. You know, I dealt with some of them on, in life after DEA on yeah. a contract job. And uh, Murphy, you'll like this since we're, it appears we're Sig Sauer guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to do a search warrant without a search warrant at Barzan, Barzan's house. Mm-hmm. And I was out there with the military and we would go after curfew. And I went to the um, maintenance people and I got a sledgehammer. So I get out of the uh, Humvee with a sledgehammer. And this military guy, a uh, really nice guy, looks at me and he says, what do you got that sledgehammer for? And I said, I'm going to, I want to get in the house. He goes, you're not using that damn thing on my watch. And he takes an, a tank, a tank, <laughs> and, and knocks the front door down. That trumps the sledgehammer every it, time. It does. It does. <laughs> it does. But Barzan wow. had serial number one on every SIG weapon that had been made to that point. Oh, you're kidding. No, serial number one. Wow. Sir, I present to you my SIG 239 with a laser sight. I converted mine from 40 to 357 uh, SIG on that one. Well, I'm I'm an equal opportunity. I have a SIG, I have a Beretta, and I have a Glock in addition to a a long gun. So I'm an equal opportunity, you know, fighter. So Good. But let's let's wind up and talk about just finishing up with Tariq. Um, Mm -hmm. Why did he cooperate with you? I mean, I know you're a nice guy. You you gave him grapes. You gave him a Cuban cigar. By the way, how could you legally get Cuban cigars over there? Was there kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, or, or did mm. uh, Saddam have a stash of these things? No, they they sold them at the uh, PXs at the uh, at the airport international. That's a story. Uh, at the uh, international airport, they they sold Cuban cigars. They sold them at the the PXs. Etc. So whoever was a supplier, there was no. They got them. Yeah, they got. So them. why would Tariq talk to you? I mean, you gave him grapes and a cigar. Don't tell me that's all it took to get the number two guy in the Iraqi government to cooperate. I mean, was that it, or was there more? Well, why would he prob- cooperate with you? You're probably going to uh, uh, say, "What a terrible interviewer you are." I never asked him why he cooperated, but the information that he provided was reliable and it was accurate. And um, the flow chart that he wrote in his, in his own hand was accurate. We, we were able to go to the bank and uh, trace and find the records. And um, so he was, he provided good information. Did he ever ask you for um, uh, something, you know, for his benefit too? like said, Hey, say good things about me for the trial. Did he ask for anything in return? the only thing he ever asked for was for his family. His family lived in the United States, and um, he uh, he said that he would uh, it would be he would greatly appreciate it if um, we could ever arrange for him to to visit his family in America. That's 
the only thing that he wanted, and I did not have the authority uh, to grant that to him. Or the wow. desire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell us about this winding up now. So by the time you get done with Tariq, how do you end things with him? I mean, does he know at some point you're leaving, or do you keep that uh, confidential? Um, I, I did not give him that information. Um, I was so busy running the leads from the information that he had provided that um, I, um, on a rare occasion, I would go back to the prison to interview someone else and I would uh, meet with him just for a few minutes and, and ask him some follow-up questions, but it, it dwindled down. So from the beginning, like I said, you really started about month two is when things really started kicking mm-hmm. in, right after the three-week wait, you know, getting mm-hmm. past the getting to know you period, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, where, did, where, did his, where, did, where did the extent to his cooperation basically max out or his information? Were you like two months in, three months in, you know, because you, you said it started tapering off. How long did it take you to get most within, of what you needed? Within the first month. In, but I worked on the intelligence that he provided during the remaining time that I was there. Mm-hmm. That's how voluminous it was. And he's doing all of this from memory, right? I mean, is, he's, it, did he have a good, was he good from that standpoint, having like an encyclopedic memory or did he just? Um, he, he was not crazy. He was a very intelligent man. Very, very intelligent. Um, and, and again, he, he told me certain documents existed. We found them. And we found them, and those he was right on the money. Out of that three, and sorry about that. For some reason, somebody wants to do something big, right? It's my house, Steve. I think it's some somebody mowing something right next to my studio mm-hmm. here. But uh, out of that three hundred billion, how many? How much did you think you could account for between you and your other teams later? Did you ever come up with that estimate? Uh, we we documented by, and just to educate your public. President Bush did something that goes under the radar, and he was able to negotiate the United States government getting access to the SWIFT system, S-W-I-F-T. And and Mr. Murphy knows what that is. If you have access to that, you can follow money all over the world. And because we had access to that, uh, Morgan, we were able to trace the money. For example, traced $2 million to Russia to the National Fisheries Bank, two embassy members for the uh, Iraq and the Russian embassy went to the bank after Saddam was captured and, and made a withdrawal. And needless to say, they're not with us today. They, um, they paid the ultimate price for taking that $2 million bucks. But we, we traced monies. You name it, United States, Canada, Philippines, South America, all over the world, it was, we had, we had the key and we used the key well. Yeah, like SWIFT is basically wow. an interbank messaging system, right? Mm-hmm. So you can track everything. And that's mm-hmm. why, I, I don't remember when President Bush came out and they talked about SWIFT. A lot of people had no idea what that really was. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize how the financial transactions move around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the most... I guess there would be no, like, where's the most shocking place you found money being taken, you know, or transferred to? But clearly, I mean, you've got Russia is, mm-hmm. been, they were friends of Saddam. I mean, there's no, it's very clear that uh, they were um, 
friends of theirs. What about Iran? What about uh, some other nations we would consider, you know, uh, state sponsors of terrorism? Definitely not Iran. Uh, well, I know because uh, they got into the fight. But my question was that that would be shocking if any money, you mm-hmm. know, showed up in Iran. Right. Uh, a lot of the money went to Syria, Morgan. Uh, a lot of the money went there. But one of the things which, and we kind of hit upon this uh, when I sh- when you were going to show the flow chart, but one of the things that is so important, Iraq had unbelievable abilities to set up front companies. And they set up front companies throughout the world. In one of the letters which we obtained during the Barzan search warrant, I found uh, a letter in his file that he wrote to Saddam. And he talked about the setting up of bank accounts in front companies Mm -hmm. and also placing monies in individuals that had no idea that the money was ever in their name. So that is the question in which no one has been able to tell me to date. And that is, and maybe no one knows, but if Saddam would have got out of Iraq, he might have been alive today. Well, he because would have had they, money everywhere. He would have. And, and many times we sat there and looked at one another in Baghdad over Chow, and we would say, why didn't he leave? Why, d-? you know, he, he knew it was coming down. The only thing that we could think of is the fact that he might have thought that if he could, the Americans would come and the Americans would quickly leave. And he did not calculate that America was going to stay. Wow. And that, and that was ended up being a very long war, obviously, along with the Afghanistan war and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Man, there's just, you know, there would be so much there to unpack, and we could do this for a long time. But mm-hmm. we want to be respectful of your time. So let's just kind of finish up because you did a couple interesting things. One is you became sheriff of the own county, of, your, of the county where you grew up in. Mm-hmm. How did, now, so when you got, how you retired from the IRS when? In 2005. And what'd you do after that? I was hired by uh, a great company out of Washington, D.C. Um, and they hired me and other several DEA agents, uh, retired DEA agents, FBI, mostly IRS special agents. And we... Uh, went into banks all across the United States and helped them develop anti-terrorism programs that would would help them uh, to keep terrorism money from coming to their banks, also narcotics money and, and so forth. So I'm very proud of what we accomplished there. And of course, as you mentioned, um, the uh, the Arabic uh, charities, mm-hmm. yeah. um, m- many of those we worked there. Who, those who went, funded, that money went, go ahead. Who funded all you guys to go into the banks to create the anti-terrorism programs? The, uh, the financial institution, the banks themselves would pay oh. for us to come in. Nice. Yeah. Very nice. It, well, yeah, all you have it, to do is a little bit of research and you can see some of the big names, uh, UBS, you know, some other ones, folks that got hammered. Mm-hmm. with yep. being facilitating money laundering and stuff like that. And uh, a lot of them spent a lot of money, just not on that, but on rehabilitating their image. Right. And and that's right. a good point, Morgan, because banks are not, <laughs> they're in the business to make money off our money. 
they're not going to frivolously spend money unless they're being mm-hmm. fined mm-hmm. unbelievable amounts. And mm-hmm. it sounds like they're doing a good thing, you know, to help protect Americans, but it's all about so we don't have to pay that damn fine again. You, absolutely. And, and to give you an example, I worked a case in New York, Miami, and New Orleans where this company actually had their own armor trucks. Wow. And and we worked with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and those people were indicted. And the bank president called me in and pointed at me and said, Mr. Sandy, you do not realize the billions, millions, it, with an M, millions of dollars that you saved my investors. Wow. So we actually, we helped the banks. We saved them from getting hit, like you said, Morgan. Oh man! Well, and look, it's I did some work with the banks way back in the day too. But they will spend a million dollars to solve a ten million dollar problem when it deals with their image and reputation uh-huh. and yeah. uh, not having this happen. But so you do that. But uh, I'm interested in how you got to your current position. But that was by way of being sheriff. But you only it was one term. Why? Uh, because I my political party um, I was. Um, um, uh, the party went to a completely different color, but I lost by point zero zero. It was very close, uh, but you know, close only counts in horseshoes and horseshoes. <laughs> but but I believe Morgan, everything happens for a reason, and I was hired by Department of Justice uh, to work with a great program called SLAT, State and Local Anti-Terrorism Training. Mm-hmm. And and I was blessed in that I actually was at, had trained law enforcement over 144,000 law enforcement in 49 states. Wow. And when I found out the governor was going to offer me this job, I called them and said, "Please arrange training in Alaska." I've been there. That would be number fifty. Fifty, and, and and they and they and they arranged it. So I went to Anchorage and taught the class. So fifty fifty states. Um, of interesting uh, story on December sixteenth, uh, two thousand sixteen, at one thirty six p.m., the governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, who's just doing a fantastic job here, uh, called me and said. I'd like for you to be my cabinet secretary. Then it was called Military Affairs Public Safety. And I said, um, and I was joking. I was joking with him. I said, so Mr. Justice, um, uh, you want me to take a $164,000 a year pay cut? And there's a long pause. And he goes, <laughs> and he goes would you? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> I, said, I said, money. I said, I want to help the state of West Virginia. And um, he's just done a fantastic job here um, in West Virginia and has been very supportive of, um, we formed uh, our fusion center. The governor uh, gave us 1.8 million and we formed a narcotics intelligence unit. And guys, we can tell you the days the days that people are bringing dope in from Detroit, Columbus, Cleveland, Akron, we can tell you the days. We can tell you the time periods. Uh, we've got uh, LPR readers, license plate readers. We are we are kicking butt. And tomorrow, due to our governor, tomorrow 
the fentanyl importation of fentanyl comes into law in West Virginia. If you're, if someone is reading this from listening to this from Detroit, you bring fentanyl in West Virginia after the 10th minimum mandatory 10 years in our prisons here. Fucking a about time. Yeah. 10, 10 years, 10 years. And uh, we are the narcotics intelligence unit. We have hired geniuses, Murphy. These people make you and I feel like we're not very smart. We've hired these kids from Marshall University, West Virginia State, West Virginia University, that are geniuses in in knowledge of computers, and we have been able to infiltrate drug dealers using Bitcoin ATM machines. Um, uh, we've been able Russian PayPal. We are doing things. We are at the forefront in West Virginia on on working drug investigations. And that's that's extremely significant because West Virginia, the population of the state isn't that great. It's not a, it's not one of the major mm-hmm. population centers in the United States. But when I remember it wasn't that long ago, per capita, West Virginia had the reputation of having the largest, uh, I guess, body of, uh, of uh, pain pill abuse in the United States. And that You're was per exactly- capita. You're exactly Murphy, and we also per capita was leading the nation in overdose deaths. Yep, and that's horrible. I, you know, just it's like every other state, full of outstanding people. Regardless of where you live, there's good people everywhere, and, and it just tarnishes everybody when st- when stuff like that goes on. But one other thing, you kind of skipped over uh, when Joe Manchin was the governor of West Virginia. He brought you into the the Capitol building, into Charleston, there also, didn't he? Yes. Um, he uh he he put me on the um on the regional jail board mm-hmm. now you might be uh, referencing and you can cut this out tom was asked to come back and form the fusion center mm-hmm. under mansion okay yeah, we're not going to cut it out because we're going right. to give tom a hard time when his time oh yeah you know. yeah i want to find out what's living in his beard these days <laughs> yeah, yeah well and, but, and and you know i mean our listeners if you don't keep up with politics joe manchin is one of the senators from west virginia now he's democrat but he <laughs> comes across pretty strong on following what he thinks is the right thing to do which i love because you know how we see all our damn politicians giving into the lobby groups and Big business and all you know the packs and all that stuff. It just right. it's it's re, it's comforting to see somebody stand up for what they believe in occasionally. You got it. If I may end with this story, Jeff, in the CPA Palace in um, Baghdad, they had put up a sign: first free oil shipment from Iraq." And we brought a a young girl in. In fact, she was the secretary at the Central National Bank of Iraq to interview. And she gets emotional, starts crying. And we go, have we offended you? Have we hurt you? And uh, the interpreter's there and the interpreter says, no, 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 no. And she goes over and puts her hand on the word freedom. And the interpreter, she tells the interpreter, freedom, my people does not know what that means. So when we question 
when we question what uh, some of our decisions are in this country, I think we should always remember that so many of these countries, freedom, they do not know what it means. Mm-hmm. And that's why our country, um, our people better realize it does not matter if you're um, um, the blue, green, purple, or whatever party, right. we're Americans. Damn right. Damn right. That's any other, the other part that goes along with that, Jeff. You said it earlier in the interview, or you alluded to it. Our freedom here in the United States, we take for granted. It's not free. You know, we just celebrated uh, Memorial Day, and, and that's to recognize those who gave the ultimate sacrifice so we could be free. So we can sit here and criticize others because that's what freedom is, freedom of speech. So what, what, what a great way to end this freaking interview, man. This is outstanding. I loved it. Love yeah. it. Well, Murphy, and let, let me just tell you this. Your presentation you gave in Columbus, um, I've, met, I've met a lot of people uh, in my life. And as you heard, for Department of Justice, I trained over 144,000 law enforcement officers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, God bless you, sir. What, what you did in Columbia, and um, um, I, I thank you. Thank you. For I thank. That. I thank you. And and if you could reinforce to Morgan that it's not Krusty Krab, West Virginia, it's Bluefield, West Virginia. <laughs> Bluefield, West Virginia, is so big it actually rolls over into Virginia to thank Bluefield, you. Virginia. Thank yes, you, sir. Because they want to be Virginians. <laughs> yes. And, and hey, I, I want to. I got to tell one quick funny story. Okay. Because Bluefield, Virginia, was there at the end of a shift, especially at nighttime. If you if you got <laughs> if you got a drunk call or something like that and you couldn't let the guy go, he had to be incarcerated. Uh, I've heard stories that cruisers would from West Virginia would zip down to the police station in Bluefield, Virginia and set that person outside the door and then ring their doorbell because their dispatch was on the second floor. And that West Virginia cruiser might scoot back into West Virginia and leave the drunk down there. <laughs> Allegedly might have happened. You heard it here, folks. I wonder uh, what the statute of limitations on that one is, Merle. Uh, it's over. It's over. Hey. hey. <laughs> I'll tell you, working in a state that's surrounded by five states, yeah. the crap the crap that goes on. I've had more mental hygienes brought across the Belpre Bridge in the West Wood County, West Virginia, <laughs> than you can imagine. Because they know we've got to drive them to Morgantown for mental evaluation where they Which have is to take way the hell out there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, final thing. We'll end up here. What a great story. Uh, let me ask you, you're sitting in front of your calendar. You're in your office, graciously gave you this time. Where are you going to be on July 28th of this year? Um, Probably out there celebrating somebody's birthday. Because uh, I have a reason for asking this. So okay. as he, he's looking, he's Mr. Secretary, Cabinet Secretary, personally checking his own calendar. He didn't call somebody in to check it for him. That's how humble of a guy this is. Yep. I believe it or not that I do not have anything on my calendar on July the 28th. Well, I will be coming into town on July 27th because I will be in your state capitol, well, down at the convention center for a thing called the Digital Government Summit all day on July 28th. Mm-hmm. So if you're around, um, I will make Murph buy, but I will gladly bring the money. Legally obtained, I remind you. Mm-hmm. There will be documentation. 
And uh, if you're around or if you have the time, let us know. Uh, courtesy of Game of Crimes, we'll provide a dinner to the Jeff Sandy family. Well, um, let me um, offer this to you. I would love if you had the opportunity, I would hold a staff meeting and I would bring in the uh, Colonel State Police Commissioner of Corrections, Fire Marshals, you name it. We would have and uh, I'd introduce you and you could shake hands and and uh, say good nothings to all the leaders of, under Homeland Security, if you're interested. I'm in. And I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you, well, I'll talk to you offline about why I'm in, but we actually have a project working right now with the cops office, the community policing section and the Virginia State Police and mm -hmm. the Virginia Association of Chiefs of Police. We're building out a new tool and a new capability for the public to help police. I think you'd be interested in. So I will take you up on that. And hell, I will tell them I'm here because Murph was too chicken to show up. You know, he was he was afraid that I would say Krusty Krab, West Virginia, he would break down to tears. Quit saying that. No, I don't like that. If I was there and you and all those other people there, you'd probably get your ass. Probably beat my ass. <laughs> I will be very respectful when I have all the state police people in the room. Yes, sir. Well, and being a former trooper, Murph has tries to always call me out of it, but I can I can relate with the state police being a former state trooper and a detective. Um, we, we have a thing about the hats. There's this the, the, the secret society of the round hat. So oh, most uncomfortable <laughs> thing I've ever had on my head. Yeah. Um, Murphy, can you uh -huh. send me a uh, address so I can uh, ship these back to now, you? You don't you don't ship those things back. Uh, first no. of all, we don't know what you have. You've been over in Iraq. Hell, I don't know what's hanging around well, your you head shook these hands days. With Tariq Aziz. I, yeah, you, you after he thing. didn't wipe, there's no way we're taking this headset <laughs> back, sir. Yeah, okay. But uh, you, you cannot disinfect it enough for us to want to take this back now that you told us that story. So, yep. not happening, sir. But okay. would you be so kind? Uh, to allow me to preview uh, your podcast before you publish it. Because you are a cabinet secretary for the great state of West Virginia, I can make that happen. Okay. But only you, Dominic Polifrone. Uh, I don't know if you know that guy, but he was the ATF agent who brought down Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. Uh, you know, he wanted to get an advance. I said, no, no way. Not you, but you, sir. You know, I live right next to your state. I don't want to be traveling over to Harper's Ferry or, or Charlestown, you know, or going there and <laughs> all of a sudden find out that my vehicle has been reported stolen or I'm getting body cavity searched and handcuffed and taken to Morgantown for a mental evaluation. <laughs> Would not make my day. There you go. <laughs> no. no. There you go. <laughs> and if folks, you can't see me, we only do audio. Mm. Thank God. Thank God. All right. Wait, look. Okay. Wait a minute. <laughs> You've got to give Tom Kirk a hard time because he made me do the body cavity search on Carly Gallo that you're going to talk to him about. I'll never let him oh. live that down. Well, hell, that prepped you then to shake hands with Tariq Aziz. Yeah, it prepared me. <laughs> so, guys, it's been an honor. And, Mr. Murphy, I meant everything I said. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. It's It's been a true honor. I can't tell you how excited I am to have a brother West Virginian on here with us. Uh, we have a good time with the state. We uh, we know what we are. We're hillbillies, and I'm proud of it. I tell that in every presentation I do. Uh, so having you on here to support me against this guy from Kansas, you know, I mean. You're giving him a big head, Jeff. I'm not going to be able to deal with this guy now. <laughs> thank you very much. He, you got Guys, have a great evening. Hang on, Thanks, everybody. Jeff. We're going to close this out. It's been a great episode. Everybody stay tuned for the debrief.
Well, I'll tell you what, if you're just not impressed by Jeff Sandy's story, I don't know what it's going to take. Because, I mean, like you say, you think of IRS and you think they're in the office or they've got, you know, just their yellow pad and they're taking notes and just this guy was out there doing stuff all the time. I mean, he he's not what you would have thought of as an IRS agent, but you know what? What a great guy. We're having a great time. And by the way, I will be running into him at the end of July. I'm going out for a uh, government summit in West Virginia, which I will be meeting with several key people, and I will be one of the featured speakers. But uh, I, Jeff said, come on up. We'll introduce you to everybody. And so that's going to be a great time. So I plan on doing that. But also, Steve, I thought it was very good. And you actually, we did this uh, with Madison Sperry's episode, but I like what you did. Uh, and why don't you tell everybody kind of the reason you did the dedication? Yeah. And uh, and so this episode was dedicated to the Marshall University football team that was killed in the plane crash years ago. Uh, and you heard Jeff's story. He graduated from Marshall. His kids all went to Marshall. Um, that was big news when I was in West Virginia because they lost, you know, I forget how many football players. I think it was over staff, 60. Yeah. Boosters. A ton of people were killed in that horrific plane crash that day. So, you know, we, we like to have a good time on here, but just for this one second, in all seriousness, uh, this is dedicated to the memories of all those killed in the plane, cl- plane crash from Marshall University. God bless you all. God bless your families. Yeah, God bless the thundering herd, and we're glad to see that you guys have, uh, like the phoenix, arisen from the ashes, you know, and yes. you've returned. So uh, very proud of you guys. And I say that in all sincerity because uh, Kansas State has played them. And by the way, Marshall, the thundering herd, will be playing Notre Dame this season. So, Wow. So there goes I think that's the, right. Uh, I think that's what Jeff said. So. All right. Notre Dame's going down. <laughs> go kick Irish. Your butts, thundering herd. You know, okay. you got your job. You, you got, got one your job. job. Got and that's to go kick your butts. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But by the <laughs> way, guys, speaking of seeing what happens, uh, let's see what happens when you go to Apple and Spotify and hit those five stars. It's magic. Stars will appear on your desktop. Unicorns will come racing across your living room. Oh, I mean, geez. just magic shit happens when you hit those five stars. So just hit. <laughs> we don't know how it works. We just know it does. Uh, also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com for more information about the show. We constantly update it. We, you know, we're going to be revising our merch uh, list as well. We've had a lot of requests to do that. We shall be doing that. But also follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, and also head on over to PayPal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show. But last time, I mean, I know we said this a hundred times, so here comes the hundred and first. Where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be. That's 104 now. <laughs> Come on over to Patreon and give us a try over here. See what you think about the, the bonus episodes we're putting in there. Obviously, you get you get more content the higher level that you do on Patreon, but it's everything from... Javier and I telling the story about the Medellin cartel to Chris Feistel and David Mitchell talking about the Cali cartel to uh, case of the month to 911, what's your emergency to you can't make this shit up. I mean, it just keeps our Q&A. It keeps going and going and going. I think we provide more content per dollar than maybe any other Patreon channel on the interwebs. I tell you what, if, if anybody's putting more on there, they're doing it every single day because it seems like you and I are recording almost every day. All this, and it's tough with your travel schedule lately to track your ass down. So we're knocking, we're knocking a bunch of stuff out while I got Murph and before he goes off to get his next free T-shirt. So, <laughs> but hey, guys, but thank you. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff, like I said, coming up. So stay tuned and make sure you go hit that subscribe button, whether you're on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, um, Podcast, Catcher, whatever they call them. You know, there's 70 different platforms out there. Just find your subscribe button, hit it, and make sure that we can deliver these episodes to you effortlessly every single week that they come out. So, And please please do go on and rate yeah. us. 
rate no. us. Yeah, give well, us feedback. Please give us five stars. That's what we're asking for. But I mean, seriously, rate us. Let us know what you think because that's how we, that's how we'll adapt to what you want to hear. Right. And speaking of adapting to what you want to hear, if you want to hear the next episode, I have to close this one out. So All right, let's I want to say, yeah, let's do it then. I want to say <laughs> thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all and successfully passing every IRS audit, the <clears throat> Game of Crimes. 